Let's take our Bibles. We're moving to the third chapter of Genesis today as we're just reminding ourselves some of the great stories, the narratives of the Bible. And Genesis 3 is where we'll land today. If you're a guest of ours, we are grateful that you're attending today, thankful that God's Spirit has drawn you to this place and believing that He is doing something in you as he is doing something in us. This is not just by happenstance that we would gather together on this day that commemorates in the week the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a day that God's Spirit has drawn us together that we might be reminded of the new life that is available and ours in faith in Christ Jesus. And it's an encouragement that you have obeyed his heeding, wooing you to come to this place. So thank you so much for your attendance. At the end of the service, you might want to take that little card that's in the seat in front of you that's a welcome card, hand it to somebody out at the main entrance, which is what we call guest connections, and they'll take that card from you, give you a gift, pass it along to me so that I can pray with you along with our staff tomorrow morning, and we would be honored to do so. Let's read God's Word together. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit, uh, food, excuse me, and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking, the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden of the day. The cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now move over to verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Speak, Lord, by your spirit through the counsel of your word, and your people will hear if you will give us spiritual ears that are open, spiritual eyes that can see, and a heart tended by your spirit so that we might receive the treasure of your truth and walk differently. Speak, I pray, O Jesus. Amen. Now to have an accurate worldview, we need to understand Genesis. 
And I would say you ought to dial into the first three chapters of Genesis if you really want to have a proper world view. As I mentioned last week, God has created all things and he did so in six days. He did so with intentionality and purpose and throughout the creation, he declared that it was good. And on the sixth day, the final day of creation, he declared that it was all very good. And so the world declares that man has evolved through millions of years to ascend to the point that we are today. But God's word says something radically different. God's word says that on the sixth day, God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. And it's at that apex of creation where God determines with his own purposefulness and intentionality that it is very good. It's at that apex that mankind falls into depravity. There was no evolution. There was a making, a creating of God for mankind. And it's from that platform that great position of being made in the image of God that we tumbled into rebellion and sin and depravity. So God created Adam as his image bearer to be in fellowship with God, communion with God, and to tend or manage to God's creation. And like all people, Adam was to be the caretaker and the steward of creation, to be productive and fruitful and to live in communion with God. However, in one horrifying event, he fell from the heights of that into the depths of depravity, so depraved that only God could rescue him in his mercy. From Genesis 2, we learn that God fashioned Adam and from Adam came Eve and the Lord took him and placed him in the garden. Even before Eve, his helpmate was given, God placed Adam in the garden and he commanded him as in chapter two, verse 16, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And as we read today, Satan came with his cunning deception to seduce Eve with his lies he sowed within Eve untruths about God making her believe that God was not altogether good that he holds back from them that he restricts them from something that they really want and making her to wonder if God can even be trusted he leads Eve and Adam ultimately to rebel against God saying you shall not surely die oh you'll be like him and Eve's eyes were delighted and longing for what God had disallowed. When she heard the serpent's cunning deceit, she moved to receive those words into the lust of her own heart. And rebelliously, she saw that the tree was good. She had a delight about it in her eyes that the tree would make her wise. So she took of it, she ate of it, and she gave of it. And Adam ate as well. Obviously, everything is out of order here. It ought to be Adam that is leading Eve to the word of God, but instead Eve is leading Adam to the deception of the enemy. Everything is out of whack. The pair, Eve, followed by Adam, were seduced by the lust that arose in their own hearts. And in that moment, they immediately recognized and understood evil. It was now part of them much greater than just eating of the fruit, they, they recognize the fullness of depravity. I like the way John MacArthur, an author and speaker and 
pastor describes this moment in a very picturesque way. Let me read to you what he declares. Adam and Eve had pulled from a stone from the base of the mountain and were horrified to discover that fatal rock slide would bury them and all humanity and its environment in the dirt and rubble of sin. And the depth of man's sinful depravity immediately became clear to them. In other words, Adam and Eve did not just sense the disobedience of that moment of eating the forbidden fruit. They knew the depth of depravity that was now in them far beyond the eating of fruit. The depth of it. This fissure opened up a great chasm of sin within them and their rebellion became a revolt against God and his word and they were sinful against him and suddenly their eyes were open to all of the sin that their flesh now craved and the brokenness of their sin. Even their sexual immorality became known to them thereby they tried to disguise and hide the very private parts of their body with fig leaves. We get a sense of their understanding, the magnitude of their, sin, of their sin in response to Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. The scripture says they suddenly knew that they were naked, and so they try to cover themselves. The scripture says that they ran and hid from God when they heard him walking in the garden, and that they were afraid of God and suddenly felt shame. All of these were evidence of a cataclysmic disaster that had occurred a moral catastrophe of the soul of mankind opening an insatiable desire for sin and constant urging to rebellion and deep depravity my friends you and I dare not overlook the fact that Adam and Eve had an unwillingness even an inability to repent to confess and repent to the one who could actually save them they didn't go to God seeking forgiveness. They didn't go to him confessing their sin. Instead, they hid it and tried to disguise and cover their shame. Although they knew their sin, they knew the consequences of it and the depth of the state of their, their lives. Rather than running to God, they ran from God. And that is the essence of our depravity that we find ourselves in, save Jesus Christ. Rather than confessing their sins, they were confrontationally blaming others for their sin. Adam says, it's the woman that you gave to be with me. She's the one that gave me the fruit and I ate. And Eve says, no, it's the serpent. The serpent came to me and offered it to me and I ate of it. In essence, Adam is blaming God for his own sin because of the woman that God had given to him. And Eve is blaming God for the creature that God has created, which deceived her. Nobody is looking at their own sin, their own waywardness. Everybody's pointing to somebody else. So Adam and Eve represent the damnable position of all mankind. Rebellious sinners are unable to repent to God and be restored. Except for God's grace, that's the place that all of us find ourselves in. Some in this room are rebellious adulterers. You know your sin and you run and hide from God while you blame somebody else if my spouse that you gave me God if, if she was intimate with me 
if she helped me meet my needs, if, if she had done her duty, then I, I wouldn't have taken what is forbidden. It's my husband, Lord. If he would just be kind to me, if he would be affectionate to me, if he would pay some emotional attention to me, then I would not have acted on the temptations that were presented to me. Some are lustful and consumed with lust. Pornography is a besetting sin that enslaves them. And rather than running to the one who can set you free, you attempt to hide in your sin, trying to explain it away, that your temptation is greater than the temptation of other people. One day you might rationalize, one day I will be free from this, this which is destroying your soul, but that day never comes, does it? Instead, you attempt to hide it and keep yourself hidden from the things of God. Some of you have fallen into drunkenness, you don't characterize yourself that way, but to the people closest to you do. Now, you can't imagine your life without the premium bourbon that you enjoy every night. You can't, you can't imagine your life without the cases of beer, the glasses of the wine, or the choice of your drink. It's my job. It's my job, God. It's just overwhelming, and my life is all-consuming. My troubles are too great, and my life is crazy. I just need to unwind. This sort of releases me, and your life is what is unwinding, and your soul is being undone as you go for the buzz day after day after day exchanging that for the peace that the Spirit of God wants to give to you. Instead, you hide. Hiding from the one who wants to rescue you, whatever the sinful patterns, be, be it adultery, lust, drunkenness, cheating, lying, stealing, gossiping, antagonizing, anger, greedy, prideful, whatever it is in your life, there's nothing about that sin that is drawing you to God in fact, it is causing you to run from God and hide from him. Let that be the moment that you say, why am I doing this? Why continue in this vein of retreating from him who is longing to be with me? Perhaps this morning the Holy Spirit will allow you, like he did for Adam and Eve, to see a glimpse of the depravity in which your life is moving in. Without Christ, we are all like Adam and Eve, aren't we? We are living in depravity. We know it. We sense it. We get an idea within us how far the sin can take us and how far removed we can be from the fellowship of God. We feel it and our mind races with it. David said it's like this, the sin that I have committed is ever before my eyes. It's just constant. It races in our minds and God is confronting us in it. And we know and we sense the judgment or the conviction of God and rightfully so. For Adam knew God had said to him, if you eat of it, you shall surely die. Just as God said of us, the wages of your sin is death. We know that. However, living in sin, we attempt to hide. Hiding from God, unable to genuinely confess and repent and be restored we're evasive pointing the blame and elsewhere so if you're like so many others you know your sin you feel its shame and its regret you experience the consequences of it you know God's judgment and you might have vowed to change a thousand times over but the change is elusive and you find yourself in this point at this day hiding hoping that nobody will discover and hoping that God is not in tune. 
Now, hiding can come in various ways for those who are churchgoers. Churchgoers often hide in self-righteousness. They argue, well, I'm not that bad. <laughs> I've, got, I've got some good in my life that overcomes that which is bad. Or if the circumstances were different, my life wouldn't be this way. Or at least I'm not doing so and so. It's a self-righteousness that they hide in. Some churchgoers hide by reimagining God. Oh, God is a loving, altogether loving God who would never judge me in my sin. He would never, God would never banish someone like me to hell. It makes no sense, but in fallenness, we run away from the one who is running toward us lovingly. We hide from the very one who can rescue us and longs to, and we remain silent to the one who is calling out to us to confess our sin in order that he might be faithful and just to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. So imagine, if you will, Adam and Eve there on that day, falling deep into depravity, trying their best to hide their shame, but unable to do so trying to hide physically behind some trees that God himself had created, the omniscient God, as if you're going to be able to hide from him. Genesis 3, 8, and 9 says, They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? I want you to know this is none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This is God in the flesh, our Christ pre-incarnate, making himself known there in the garden, calling out, walking and calling out to Adam and Eve, as he had done many other times probably, walking with them, fellowshipping with them, talking, loving with them. And they hear the Lord walking now, I want you to get the image of this, the Lord Jesus walking in the garden. He is not thrashing. He is not charging. He is walking to them. It's a gentle nature that our Lord has. He is walking to them in the cool of the day. And notice the definite article. This is, this is a time in the day, obviously, in which the Lord, you get a sense of this, is there with them regularly. This isn't some surprising event the, the writer is telling us about. This is the cool of the day, and the Lord is walking to them. Any other day, Adam and Eve would have run to him. Any other time, the Lord would be walking toward them. They would have already had an eagerness built in them, an anticipation of being in communion with Christ, walking in, with him in the garden. But on this day, it's very different. On this day, they run from him. On this day, they hide from him. Everything is different. When the Lord draws near, they have a sickening feeling in their gut. Fear rises in them. Their face is flushed. Their hands are attempting to purposefully cover their intimate parts in shame because I know the fig leaves couldn't have done much. They hide behind some trees. And Christ is calling out to Adam. He's calling out to him saying, where are you? Now, in the Hebrew, that's one word. It gets packaged in the English translation as three, but it's one word in the Hebrew language. 
And he's saying to them, where are you? He's not asking about their location. God is omniscient. He knows, he knows our location at every given moment of the day. He is one who is all-seeing. By the way, the Holy Spirit repeats that throughout the scripture over and over and over. He wants us to know that God is always looking Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 there is no creature hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account and the Lord is looking down Psalm 33 says the Lord is looking down from heaven he sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth he who fashions the hearts of them all observes all their deeds you think the psalmist recognizes there's no hiding there's no sense in hiding or attempting to hide from God the eyes of the Lord Proverbs 15 says are in every place keeping watch on evil and the good so no the Lord is not calling out to Adam asking where are you to find him instead God is asking of Adam where are you in a longing for Adam to disclose where his heart, mind, and soul really are. What's going on in you, Adam? Where do you find your heart? Where do you find your soul? Where do you find your mind, Adam? Where are you? It's a beckoning and it's a plea from God for Adam to come to him in confession. Where are you? Because Adam's not coming into confession on his own. God is coming to him. And he's asking. Where are you? Where are you? It's God's invitation to identify your sin. And your need for repentance. And with that one confession. That one question. Comes God's grace. For you and me to bear our soul, bear our deeds before the one who can rectify them. With the question, where are you, is God's invitation extended to you to come clean, to reveal your thoughts, to reveal your heart, to reveal the soul, to make yourself known to God. It's not like God needs to know. He knows. But we need to make confession and we need to make confession to the one who can reconcile who can do something with the sin that we can do nothing about so he is asking of us where are you and with that question comes the grace for us to actually confess and repent to the Lord that he might save and restore us to come out from the hiding and truly present ourselves to God the one who seeks us offering to us a walk in the freedom from sin so when we see the words where are you it's God's grace that's extended to us where are you in the recesses of your mind, in the darkness of night, in the aloneness of the day, when the whispers of your rationalization are flooding your mind? And where are the intentions of your heart and mind? Where are you? With that one simple question, where are you? We find the gospel of God rising in the very first word that God has uttered to the fallenness of mankind. Where are you? 
Now look, he could have said a thousand other things. Shame on you. Curse be you. Dead are you. He could have said a lot of things, but instead, in his grace, he says, where are you? Where are you? That's the Spirit's call today. In the hiding and the covering, God is saying, where are you? And when he's asking the question, he is extending with the question a grace moment. Confess to me where you are. Repent to me from where you are. What a joy that God would love us enough to ask the question, where are we? With that simple question comes the four simple truths of the gospel that I think are found in Genesis 3. God seeks out sinners. I know you were thinking as I was preaching, naming out some sins, calling out some that you struggle with, calling out some your neighbor struggles with, hoping I don't call out the ones you're dealing with today, whatever. But you were thinking, man, this is a message about sin. No, 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 this is a message about grace. Genesis 3, we point to the fruit, to the sin of taking it, to the depravity that is open to us. But oh, God has one word for us translated in this magnanimous question. Where are you? He's seeking out sinners. You thought he was coming to chide you. Oh no, he's coming to woo you. He's seeking you out. Seeking out sinners. I'm so grateful for that. If I didn't know the treasure of that truth, that he would seek me out, I'd, I'd try to hide from him the rest of my days. If I didn't know that to be true, I would hold on close to those secret sins. I, I would hope that you or God would never discover them, but instead, knowing God's grace, that he's seeking out sinners, I'm saying, here I am, Lord. Here I am. God is inviting sinners to confess. This is the good news of God. He's seeking us out to call us to confess. Where are you? That's an opportunity for you to confess. When you're in the back parking lot hoping for the other person to show up, where are you? Oh, you're not just in the parking lot. Where's your mind? Where's your heart? Where's your intention? Where's your soul? When you're going to pour again, where are you? Uh, not just in the moment that you're trying to bring some relaxation to your life and some settleness to the racing of your mind and maybe some sleep in the evening. No, where's your mind? Where's your heart? Where's your soul? Where are you? And when everybody in the family feels the tension of your anger and your rage, God is saying, where are you? Not just in the moment of your home as your family scampers off to their isolated places. Where's your heart? Where's your mind? Where's your soul? And God is offering you the opportunity to say, here I am, Lord. You have sought me in my sin. Here I am, Lord. I'm confessing my sin to you. Here I am because you've given me grace to communicate this to you. 
And here's the third component of the gospel that is evident in this. God has a desire to restore us, to bring us to restoration. You're not going to be able to do it on your own. If you could have done it over your own strength and ability, you would have already done that long ago. But you can't bring restoration to your own life. You need the Almighty to bring restoration to you. So God is seeking you out. God is giving you the opportunity to make confession for the purpose of you being restored in a manner that would bring glory to him. And that brings me to the fourth, that God is providing redemption. For Adam and Eve who took some kind of vine probably and wove the best that they could, the fig leaves to cover their shame, Obviously, that wouldn't last very long, probably not throughout the day, certainly not the evening. God said, oh no. Fig leaves are not gonna cover you and your shame. And God took an innocent animal and he killed that animal and took the skins of that animal and fashioned something that would cover over Adam and Eve. But it's not just about that moment. What God was doing was giving us a glimpse of his own son, the innocent Lamb of God, who would die for our transgressions, that we might be set free from them. That we might be set free to the obedience of Jesus Christ, that he might lay down his life in order to take it up again, that on the third day he would rise so that you and I would be given newness of life. So we find in Genesis 3 an amazing narrative I didn't even get into all of it, just touching the surface, but we find in this grand passage, the gospel. Here, here's what I want us to walk away from. The very first word that God spoke after the fall of mankind was a word of the gospel. Where are you? And that same word permeates through this congregation right now. Lord, here I am. Here I am, I make confession to you. Here I am, Lord, knowing that only you could restore me. Here I am, Lord, with faith to be redeemed. Here I am. In that comes amazing freedom. In that comes amazing joy. In that comes a weightlessness that you have not felt. Oh, I pray that you'll move in faith toward him as he has sought you out today. Let's pray together. This is a day of freedom. It's a day of salvation. It's a day in which joy is your intention, Lord. And as you have called us to present ourselves to your word and we hear it and sense the depth of it, measure our lives by it we want to align ourselves perfectly to it as we hear the gospel in this text for those who have received you by faith we give gratitude to you we yield our life to you as bond servants unto you if you've laid down your life for us we pledge the rest of our days to live for you for some in this room they have bound themselves and church-going self-righteousness or re-identification of who you are trying to 
hide from the reality of the God of the Bible. We've discovered today that there is no hiding, but you are calling out to us, seeking us. In the midst of our sins, seeking us, longing to restore us, redeem us. We bless you for that. I pray that some, if not all, would treasure your truth and receive it by faith and walk differently with the newness of life, being made new by your spirit. Others are coming to faith in Christ today in the hearing of this word. Some walking from this point forward in freedom, recognizing the fullness of their sin, the depravity of it, where it's taking them away from you. And they long to be restored by you. And by your grace, you're calling to them right now. Where are you? So as you have found us, rescue us, I pray. In the blessed name of Jesus, amen.